You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right, we are good to go whenever. Hello and welcome to the Talking About podcast. I am Sean Kennedy. Unfortunately, my usual co-host this week, Daniel Olinger, is not able to join us. But we have uh, a great guest for you all. It's Jackson Frank of our own Liberty Ballers and a lot of other things as well. Uh, Dime and the Step Back and you can find him on the, uh, the Locker Room app doing some pods. Always great content from Jackson. We're happy to have you. How are you, Jackson? I'm doing pretty well. I appreciate you having me on. I'm, I'm bummed that we don't get Daniel as well, but luckily I was able to talk some some Sixers with Daniel yesterday afternoon before you know whatever ha- whatever uh, you know occupied him today. But uh, happy to be here and talk some more Sixers. Great. So yeah, game one is Sunday at 1 p.m. between the Sixers and Hawks. Uh, we don't have the rest of the second round schedule out, but before we uh, pivot to the Atlanta series, I just wanted to kind of take a look back at the first round series against Washington. Obviously, the kind of all-encompassing news around Philadelphia basketball right now is the status of Joel Embiid. He was injured in the Game 4 loss and missed Game 5, but he was out in pre-game warm-ups and doing some shooting and kind of looked to be you know, moving around at regular speed, that is going to be the big question as to whether he'll be available sooner rather than later for the Sixers. But Embiid uh, aside for the moment, what about the the series against Washington surprised you the most or, or maybe either encouraged you or discouraged you about the Sixers' chances in this postseason, Jackson? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I feel like every time I've talked about this series and the Sixers as of late, Tyrese Maxey has come up in some some form or another. I mean, Daniel and I spent, you know, probably 15 minutes talking about him on my on my podcast earlier this week. But I think that's got, like, just the way his role seemed to kind of grow so so quickly in that series. I mean, obviously, some of it was born out of necessity. And they needed someone who could create shots once Embiid was out. And he played 26 minutes in game Game five was the, the was the fifth. I think he played the fifth most minutes in that game. You know, Matisse Thybul started, but you know, before Doc emptied the bench, you know, Tyrese was the one playing a lot of minutes with that that starting unit. So I think that plus plus maybe Seth Cur- Seth Curry's you know game. I thought he was you know even before game five, I thought he was pretty aggressive, getting to his spots and finding shots off the dribble. Um, you know, a lot of people compared him to JJ Redick, but I think it's clear that. He has a he has a different game than JJ Redick. He has a little more off the bounce ability, and you saw him be pretty comfortable and confident getting to his shots, which has kind of been a pretty major question. You know, talking point, I guess, is the best way to phrase it around Seth Curry. At times, he's he's looked really confident getting to his spots and being aggressive, and other times he's been a little more gun shy. So um, he's he's going to be kind of key, I think, for the Sixers, especially with you know forever long Embiid is you know out. But I even think with Embiid, you need Seth Curry to, to be aggressive finding his shots. So. I would say those two things were the biggest surprises to me. Everything else I kind of expected going. I thought I thought Tobias would play well against a team like the Wizards didn't have a big big front line. I thought Ben would play well, you know, too, and we saw both of those things. But the guard play from a couple of you know, kind of complimentary players is really what stood out most to me in that series. Yeah, the the Seth JJ comparison I get why people make it, but 
as you said, they, they have very different games. Curry is a guy who can kind of create for himself a little bit and take guys off the dribble, whereas J.J. is a guy who's going to run off screens at 100 miles an hour, and he has the much quicker release, and he is much more capable of, or at least J.J. when he was with the Sixers. I, I don't know so much anymore as he gets up there in age, but he, he's able to you know fly sideways at full speed and, and fire it up, whereas Seth needs to be a little more uh, set and his release is much slower. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I understood the comparison because as JJ and Joel had that great two-man partnership with the DHOs and everything, uh, Seth has certainly inherited a bit of that uh, role within the offense. Um, yeah, and then Tyrese, as you said, he – I think this is just unexpected, not because we didn't think – he was capable of this down the road, but just Doc Rivers and his history playing rookies in the postseason and the fact that the Sixers do have, you know, a lot of bench options that he goes to, I just think everyone kind of thought that would preclude Maxi from really emerging this postseason. But it's been tremendous to watch. He's a huge fan favorite. It seems like the arena is completely energized whenever he's on the court. Um but I guess it kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with his, his emergence and Shake Milton's struggles in the first round with uh, some of Shake's usual minutes and role kind of getting passed along to, to Maxi. What did you think of Shake's uh, first-round series, and are you concerned going forward about that? Yeah, honestly, it, it, it kind of was reminiscent of, of Shake his rookie year. I mean, if, you're, like, if you recall, I felt like every time Shake played his rookie year, things just kind of seemed... Like, he just, just seemed out of place. Like, the game was too quick for him. He struggled with physicality. He couldn't really score very effectively. Uh, and Shake's made huge strides the last couple of years, but he just, it just felt like he he was pressing and trying to do things in a way that, that weren't there. I mean, he, I don't, I mean, he, I want to say maybe he hit four or five shots in that, in that series. And he didn't play a ton of minutes. I mean, um, but he just, like, he just struggled whenever he got any sort of, like, semblance of rotation minutes, even though they were scarce. He was, you know, whether it was a poor closeout or he, he forced up a shot through contact that didn't need to be taken. He just, he just didn't have it in this series. It just, it was, it was wasn't the shake that, like I think that has made himself into a viable rotation guard for this team in the NBA for most of his last couple of years. It just, I, I mean, like I think it's obviously better than he was as a rookie, but it felt like that in the sense that like he was just out of sorts a lot throughout this series, and, and that's kind of the way that that shake was at times as a rookie, and part of the reason he. He struggled in the, the, the moments that he did get playing time, you know, when he was kind of bouncing between the Sixers and the, and the, the Blue Coats. So, uh, yeah, I think that's my, kind of my interpretation of it, but just just didn't really play the play the style that I thought we saw when Shake was at his best this year and even even last year to an extent. For sure, it was it was weird because it wasn't just a case of oh the shots aren't falling. He he definitely looked a lot of like very much out of sorts and there was some poor dribbling. He was making bad decisions with the ball, uh, you know, looking to find his teammates. Uh, it just wasn't a case of, Oh, well he was, he was getting to his spots and those are shots he normally knocks down and, and just, you know, simple variants. They didn't happen to go in. He just didn't look like the same guy we saw for much of the season. It was a strange series for him, but you know, doc after game five said that he, still believes in shake and he's going to win a couple games for him moving forward. So I don't think we've seen the last of shake Milton. Um, and hopefully he is able to turn it around, uh, moving forward in this, starting with this Atlanta series. So, uh, let's, you know, move along to our, our second round matchup here in Philadelphia, uh, Atlanta, after their game five win against the Knicks, they are poised to, 
come to Philadelphia for game one on Sunday. So I guess we'll start with if Embiid is not available immediately. I, I know you've discussed and, and mentioned about all the, the rim protection issues that are, arise when Joel isn't on the court and how that kind of hurts guys like Ben and Matisse who could be a little more aggressive in their coverage of perimeter guys, which is going to be huge with Trey Young because Joel isn't back there as a security blanket. Um, is, is there anything the Sixers can really do or if Joel's not in there, what? how do you foresee them like tackling that challenge of, of Embiid not being there in the paint? Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, I think you saw such a huge discrepancy even when they went from small ball to Dwight Howard at the five in game in game five. And you know, Dwight is is I thought he was a pretty good room protector, especially for a backup big this year. But he's not Joel, right? And you can't play Dwight that many minutes because you can't like you don't want to play him with Ben very much because the spacing there is just really tough. So I I it, it, I I don't have a great answer honestly. I think it, the fact of the matter is as long as Joel's out, they're probably especially against a team like the Hawks that have two great lob threats in Collins and Capella, and then also shooters around, you know, Trey Young and, and whatnot. Because what what I thought the Sixers did better as Game 5 progressed against the Wizards, they realized, okay, the Wizards don't really have any shooting, you know, with, with Bertons out of, you know, with, with Bertons nursing his strained calf. Uh, like, they have Helen Neto, but then when they played Neto, Seth Curry just decided, okay, I'm going to use my size advantage, which Seth Curry doesn't have a huge size advantage over many guys, but Neto was one of them. Uh, and that forced Scott Brooks to take to put Ish Smith in the game, and the Sixers just loaded up so much help in the paint off of shooters to stop Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal. And you can't do that against the Hawks. You know they have Kevin Herter, they have Bogdan Bogdanovich. You know Daniel Gallinari, Collins can space the floor now as a shooter as well. So uh, I don't think there's a great answer. I think it's going to have to be that you know Dwight is really good in the minutes he does get. I imagine Dwight will play. You know anywhere from 12 to 15 minutes as long as Joel's out and even when Joel comes back maybe a little bit less but uh and then Ben's gonna have to be Ben or Tobias is gonna be have to be good in those those from protection scenarios I mean Tobias is kind of playing the de facto five when that starting that starting lineup in the sense that you know Ben may have been the tallest guy out there but Tobias was the one hanging around the paint a lot and you know kind of being asked to help at the rim and stuff so um there's really not a great answer because they I mean just because they don't like it'd be great if they had a stretch five who could also you know, protect the rim because they could play him with Ben Ben more, but that's a very valuable commodity. There aren't many guys who can space the floor as a five and offer a lot of high level rim protection. So uh, it's gonna t- it's gonna I mean it's cliche, but it's gonna be a team effort. It's gonna require Tobias and Ben to protect the rim better than they have throughout most of their career, and um, it's also gonna require Dwight to be disciplined and you know um, not chase all those blocks that we've seen him kind of do throughout his career in this year, where he he kind of unnecessarily kind of leaves his feet and the guy gets an offensive rebound or something like that or a putback. So. Um, you know, group effort sounds cliche, but it honestly is a case when you're trying to make up for a guy like Joel Embiid, who is a, you know, I think at his peak is a, is a top one or two center in the NBA defensively. Um, you just can't really replicate that, especially now that they kind of, I mean, they lost Tony Bradley, they traded Vincent Poirier as well. So, um, it's just, just kind of tough, tough options there. It's going to be a, going to require kind of very, a lot of diligence from the guys who are there. It, it certainly is. And Doc said get that game five win was a all hands on deck situation. And it, it seems like it's going to have to be that moving forward. Um, unless they get a good prognosis on Joel's meniscus and he is ready to go sooner than expected. Yeah. It's, uh, Tobias is, you mentioned him being the de facto five and he was guarding Daniel Gafford a lot. And we, we've seen that in past post seasons too, where, they will put him on a on a Marcus Saul or a uh, Brooke Lopez if they want in the Milwaukee 
games where you, they wanted Embiid on Giannis, and there was the playoff series against the Raptors where mm-hmm. that kind of cross switch really worked out well for the Sixers. So he is a guy that can like body those bigger guys up and and do a good job keeping them off the boards. But yeah, the, as you said, the rim protection just becomes such an issue because uh, you know Ben, as as great a defender as he is, he's not the prototypical guy who's going to you know stop guy his presence down there doesn't mm-hmm. dissuade people from attacking and then Tobias is not he's not a big leaper or anything so he's not filling that role um what did, what did you think about Matisse's insertion into the starting lineup against Washington and and do you think that would be something that Doc is going to stick with against Atlanta yeah I mean I I understood it I got the idea that like you wanted to go with with more defense like you trusted your offense enough to get the job done against you know a Wizards team that just didn't have the size to match you know Ben and Tobias most mostly um so I understood it but uh, I honestly thought for the most part this is like you know maybe beyond I thought game one he was, Matisse was pretty good defensively in game two obviously he had that ridiculous was like five blocks and four steals in 18 minutes 19 minutes but I honestly thought this was one of Matisse's kind of least impactful defensive stretches of the season. And he talked about it after game five that like he learned like against Bradley Beal, he like discipline, discipline, discipline. He's gotten better at that this year. Like it's, it's, it's much better than his rookie season, but um, you could still tell there were times where Beal kind of knew how to, to bait Matisse in a lunging for a steal or a block um, and using that to his advantage. And Matisse talked about that. He just, he's he ha- like superstar offensive players, no defensive players tendencies, just as superstar defensive players, no offensive players tendencies. And typically the offense is going to win out there and that's what happens. So, I didn't mind it at all, and I mean, Doc is a guy who, you know, is very comfortable starting one guy, but, you know, if, if another player has kind of the, the hot hand, he'll roll with them as, a, as a, kind of the 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 fifth piece in a, in a starting lineup, and you, you, I mean, you saw that with, with Maxi, so um, I understood it, but I, I don't know if it, it can work moving forward as much because, like, because the, the, the Hawks are a much better, you know, offensive team, and at the same time, you know, you don't want to skip, you don't want to scheme an entire plan around what, how do you kind of, you know, combat Trey Young, but if you just let the Hawks put Trey Young, Trae Young and Matisse Seibel, you're kind of letting him off the hook, just as kind of the Knicks did with Reggie Bullock, and Bullock's even a better pl- offensive player than Matisse, so um, we'll see what they do. Doc said he did not consider starting Maxi in Game 5, um, which I saw, I, I wouldn't convey to me that he'll consider doing it in Game 1 or as long as Joel is out, but um, I understood kind of, you know, the idea behind Matisse. Um, but I do wonder if you might want someone a little more offensively inclined um, to not kind of let Trey Young off the hook because then you have five guys who are who are a threat. And if you want, if Trey Young wants to guard Danny Green, um, by all means, I think Danny Green will just he'll hit he'll hit five open threes in the first fourteen minutes doing the, the classic Danny Green cut because Trey Young is not a very good off ball defender has not shown a kind of a I guess a discipline on that end. I mean, Bullock was open a lot. The, the Knicks just didn't have the offensive talent. And while the Sixers aren't an elite offensive team, they're certainly a step up from the Knicks. Yeah, I know a big criticism again among Knicks fans in in their first round series of the Hawks was just Tibbs not doing enough to hunt out Trey Young when the Knicks had the ball and not seeking to exploit that mismatch and, and really make him work defensively. Uh, how do you think Doc is going to to best attack that? And what do you, what arrangements do you think he can make to to try to get Trey Young on a switch on a mismatch or? How do you think Doc's going to approach that situation? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I don't. I, I'm trying to think back. I don't think we've seen a ton of you know really really porous defenders that Doc you know throughout the years like made an emphasis to target because they've had Joel and Joel. I mean, Joel's like 
he is, I mean, I think, I think when the Sixers were fully healthy, they're probably maybe like a, a fringe top 10, you know, offense. I don't think they quite ended there, but I mean, Joel missed 21 games, so it's tough to say, but they didn't really have to worry about that, right? Because Joel was so good in the post and kind of doing his thing from all over the floor. Um, but I think the way to go about it is, it seems simple, but just use Trey's defender as a screener. If he's guarding Matisse, if he's guarding Danny Green, Seth Curry, like, you know, run those kind of inverted pick and rolls that you'll see that we saw a lot with like Joel and JJ Redick years past, like, like get Tobias as, as the ball handler, Ben as the ball handler and, and see if, see if the Hawks will like, can you set a good screen so that Trey can't just like show on the ball screen and then recover to his man, whoever it is, like force him onto a switch against Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris, like really involve him in the action. Um, and again, you don't want to run an entire offense through just, you know, targeting Trey Young, um, but you do have to make him work. You do have to kind of make him feel you defensively, uh, and kind of, you know, you don't, you know, I, I don't want to say rough him up, of course, but you want to kind of offer some physicality on defense that maybe drains some of his offensive energy because he does so much on that end. And I think part of the reason he was so good against the Knicks is because they just couldn't make him work. And so kind of involve him in more action and, and force him to really kind of commit himself on that end. Um, at times, again, you don't want to stray away from what's, what's worked offensively, but I think there are enough ways to kind of blend attacking Trey Young defensively into what you already do um, on that end at times. Yeah, it's a different offense for the Sixers when they don't have Joel because give it to the guy on the nail and he'll he'll hit over 50% of his one-footed uh, mid-range jumpers is something that you don't really need to scheme for. That's just, you got the great player, go out there and let him be great. So... This was mentioned in Game 5 when Doc, in his postgame, said, yeah, you don't want a situation where you're missing your best player, but it does create an interesting challenge for you as a coach because suddenly you have this this problem that wasn't there before and you have to kind of go back to the drawing board and and come up with new ways to to allow your team to succeed. So, um, yeah, if Joel's not in there, it's going to be interesting to see how the the offense kind of evolves. And they did a good job in Game 5, but Washington is – you know, as it's well documented, they're not a good defensive team, and it didn't. There was a, a ton of mismatches the Sixers were able to exploit in that series that just won't be there against an Atlanta team that has a lot longer wing defenders. That like Washington was just playing guards and big men. They they really didn't even have any wings um, to combat the Sixers. And you know, Clint Capella is is an excellent defender on the interior. So um, yeah, it's it's a much tougher challenge for the Sixers, and it, it only be exacerbates uh, their potential difficulties if Joel's not in there. Um, shifting to when Atlanta does have the ball, obviously the number one focus is going to be stopping Trey Young, who averaged over 32 points a game on the road in in, in their first-round series. So his you know first time on the premier stage, he really stepped up and you know did everything you could want him to do if you're an Atlanta fan. Uh, his ability to stretch the floor... I think he shot somewhere around 36% this year on shots of 30 plus feet is something the Sixers are going to have to account for. How, how exactly do they attack that? Because I know if they try to come out too far and, and that can create, you know, opportunities in the paint uh, for their rollers who you said, both Capella and John Collins are, are, are great rollers and the Sixers won't have that rim protection in there. How, how would you go about, you know, tackling the Trey issue and, and what defensive schemes do you think will, will work best for the Sixers in this series? 
Yeah, that's, I mean, this is, I think, obviously, an offense, you, you miss Joel, of course, because all he can do is just, you know, self-create, as you said, just kind of dump the ball on him with the elbow or the, the mid-post and let him do his thing, but I think on defense, kind of, especially schematically in this matchup is where you miss him, because, you know, we've seen Joel play up more at times in pick and rolls, and you saw him hedge and trap somewhat in this series, you've seen him do that throughout the year, and I think that would have been something you've, you would have seen a lot in this series, because Trey loves getting to that floater, I mean, he... He crushed the Knicks with it because he was all, he was always able to get kind of two feet in the paint, and they had to decide between taking away the Capella lob or the Trey floater, and um, the Knicks weren't able to really kind of balance that well. And so I think Joel's presence would have been huge there. Um, but I think similarly, the goal, I mean, just has to be to limit Trey's paint touches, right? Because he's he, he's he's not a great finisher, but he's very good at that floater. And if he gets deep enough, he'll make kind of either the wraparound pass to, to Capella or the lob over the top, or if the defense collapsed too much, they'll have shooters in either corner, and he... He's a brilliant passer off of a live dribble. So I think that's got to be, you really, I think you have to probably be aggressive defensively. But at the same time, Trey is, you know, I don't want to say trap him because Trey throughout his career, you know, I think, you know, just anecdotally, I don't have the numbers. I think he's done very well against traps because he is such a good passer. And if you do that, then you leave yourself susceptible to Trey throwing countless lobs and, and stuff and creating easy layups for for Collins or, um, or Capella. So I think it's going to have to be like, you know, Ben's going to have to be, great getting around screens they love to run kind of those early action you know kind of those double drag screens up top in the early offense and I think Ben's gonna have to be great getting around those it's a tough ask I mean Ben's improved a lot with the screen navigation but Trey is kind of the the exact archetype who still gives Ben some issues kind of the, the quick shifty guards who you know are just working from kind of a speed and and a speed advantage I guess is the best way to put it um even though Ben is incredibly fast especially for his size um but that's the biggest thing is just not letting Trey kind of get the corner. I and mean, that's you never want an offensive player like of Trey's caliber to kind of get the edge and get a, get an advantage there. But especially in this in this matchup where you're kind of lacking on the back end a little bit, um, it's going to require a a very very good defensive uh, you know series from Ben. And I think he's he's certainly shown you know the potential to to be up to the task. It's just a matter of of going out and doing it. But it's a tough ask because his offensive responsibilities are also increased in the situation. Yeah, they they sure are, and you're you're right that Trey is the archetype of the the small uh, like water bug point guard that has really given the Sixers trouble over the years. He had, he had the 39 point game uh, last year, and even though the Sixers won in April, uh, Trey did put up 32. He got to the line 10 times. Uh, it's just never something the Sixers have really had an answer for, and I, I think a lot. A lot of that might fall on Matisse, and hopefully, you, you know, you said the first round series for him was was not very good. But maybe that, like learning those lessons, playing at a, a top superstar guard like Bradley Beal, he can kind of, you know, take some things from that and apply it to his efforts against Trey in this upcoming series. Uh, because I think, you know, especially with Ben, if if they go smaller, like having him on, then the Hawks' smallest guy that kind of creates mismatches elsewhere mm-hmm. with, with the Hawks being a, a team that's got pretty good size themselves. Um, so looking back at the, the regular season games, I, it was, it's weird in that both these teams never really had a, a full strength game against each other. The, the Sixers were only with nine guys in the first game that Atlanta won. And then the two games in April, Atlanta was basically 
playing like a skeleton crew in the game. The mm-hmm. Sixers won by 40 plus, and then they still had a couple, or I think three of their their main rotation guys were out for that second game, even though Trey Trey and a couple others were back in the game. Um, but what, in those matchups, was there anything you can kind of take away that hey, the Sixers had success doing that? And again, the Embiid thing is the question, but. What, what takeaways can you have from those regular season meetings, if any? Yeah, I mean, it's so tough because, as you mentioned, key guys were out of, of each matchup. I mean, you know, Joel went off in the first half of that game back in January, and then the Hawks kind of, you know, I think Trey Young had a really good game, and then the, the Joel didn't play past, like, the eight-minute mark or something in the third quarter. Uh, and then Bogdan Bogdanovich, you had a, a very, very, very good year for the Hawks, missed both of those late-season matchups. So, I mean, like, they started Brandon Goodwin and Will Williams and Solomon Hill in the first time that... When they played in Atlanta, um, Trae Young played the second. When they played Atlanta, excuse me, Trae Young played the, the second time in that kind of that two games in three days, as you mentioned. But I I don't know how much there's a takeaway because like I mean Goodwin and Hill aren't in the rotation um, right now. Like and so I mean Chris Dunn played 15 minutes. Chris Dunn had that kind of that that scuffle with I think it was Matisse Thibault or something like that. I don't recall exactly, but I I can't take away a ton. I just know that like you know when Trey did play, he and Capella had a really nice chemistry and lobs. And that's something that even with Joel, they've, you know, I think Joel improved a lot in kind of playing those one-on-two situations as a pick-and-roll defender, but it's still something that he he has struggled with maybe more so than other elite centers because he is a little more ground-bound, right? He's not some explosive vertical leaper in the way that, you know, like, he doesn't quite have that same level of, you know, just, I don't know exactly what the phrase is, but you look at a guy like even Miles Turner or Rudy Gobert, two of the other kind of preeminent defensive centers, I think they're a little better at that than Joel is even if he's improved. So that's the biggest thing is I think, they're probably going to struggle to take away that lob threat from Capella, and so it's a matter of figuring out ways to at least slow it a little bit. Um, but that's kind of the thing that I took away there. But it, I mean, as you said, it's just tough because so many keep guys were out um, of these series and of this kind of this three-game series in the regular season. So I don't have a ton to, to offer in terms of insight from those games because I don't think they presented a ton of relevant information beyond the fact that I think the Sixers will have their hands full taking away that, that Trey Young Capella two-man game. Um, even if Joel was playing, I think they'd be more capable of it. But, um, you know, for as long as he's out, you know, if at all uh, in this series, uh, they'll have even more more struggles, you know, in this matchup. Yeah, Joel doesn't have that kind of quick twitch explosiveness yeah. that a lot of, like, rim-running lob threat centers have in the NBA. He's he's obviously very athletic, and he's good laterally, like staying with smaller guards, and he has terrific defensive instincts, and that kind of makes up for it when he is in those one or two situations. But, yeah, that that is an area that, if, if you're picking nits about Joel's overall defensive game, that's, that's certainly one of his weaker areas. Um, and then you have Dwight, who, against a Atlanta team that, was top two in free throw rate this year and Dwight's, you know, foul difficulties are well documented at this point. You got to hope he can be a little smarter out there, especially in games that Joel isn't available. Um, It's certainly going to be a a potential challenge for the Sixers. Um, With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So we talked a lot about Trey Young. Among the Hawks' supporting cast, 
you mentioned Bogdanovich, who had a great year for them, shooting 43% from three, and the whole Milwaukee situation uh, going awry was a huge boon for them. Uh, He's been one of their most important players this season and and a big reason they've exceeded expectations getting to the second round. So it could be him, but any, anyone else among the supporting cast, who do you think uh, has come on lately or who do you think is the worst matchup for, for Philadelphia in this upcoming series? Yeah, I think, I think Bogdan has to be kind of, you know, if we're outside of trans, be priority number one, um, because he, he is so good on and off the ball. That's why he's slid in. So when next to Trey, because when Trey plays, They'll just run him through those pin downs, those floppy actions, and he's such a he's so good at creating space off off of those screens, and he can shoot off movement. That's like okay, then Trey will just facilitate the offense, and then when Trey sits down, we can play Bogdan, and he can run he can run you know a few pick and rolls for the the twelve minutes Trey is out there, you know Trey out of the game in those three minute increments or so. Um, so that's kind of priority number one, but I think it, it will depend on who Doc decides to start in Joel Embiid's place as long as Joel is out, because if they go Matisse again, I think you can. You can feel reasonably confident in the matchups if you like between just you know balancing Matisse and Ben on Trey and Bogdan. But if you start a guy like George Hill or a guy like you know I don't think he's gonna start Tyrese Maxey, but if he did, like Danny Green, I, I think he would struggle in that Bogdan matchup because Danny Green, kind of the archetype that really has really given him issues defensively, is is those guys who can run through a lot of screens right and create space. You know, Doug McDermott's given him issues. Joe Harris, you know, Bradley Beal in that first game of the year, um, even the second one I think when he dropped sixty. Um, obviously those are all kind of different types and caliber of players, but those guys who use a lot of screens off the ball is where Danny kind of struggles because he doesn't have quite that, that quick twitch movement ability anymore at this age. Still, I mean, still a very good defender, did an excellent job against Russ, but it's about kind of maximizing his matchups to kind of make sure he is in the best positions defensively. So, um, he would be kind of the main priority, but I'm also curious what they do against Danilo Gallinari. You know, um, Matisse did an excellent job, I think in the first matchup in April, um, was it when Montice held me? I think Gallo was maybe one of eleven or one of ten from the floor. Um, but are, but are those num- are those minutes going to align because if Matisse starts and, and Gallo Gallinari comes off the bench, like it's a little tougher to kind of match those minutes, right? So um, and if they don't, they're probably going to be playing small, right? I mean, they have kind of five perimeter options you know, off the bench or four, if I recall. I think five, right? That means George Hill, Shake, Tyrese, Matisse, and and Furkan, so five. If my math is correct yes. there, um, and and that's tough because I mean the Sixers. They go small off the bench. I mean, they start Dwight, and I mean Dwight is six nine, right? I mean, like it's he's he's a center, but you kind of forget that like Ben Simmons is taller than him. Uh, when, I think when they came out with their, their official measurements at the start of the year, Dwight was like six nine and a half, and Ben was six ten and a half. So, um, so it's I think that'll be kind of the other matchup that I'm curious. I mean, Kevin Herter's the guy who has been he was excellent in that, in that Knicks series, kind of under the radar, and has been very good in his his third year here. So, um, the Nick the Hawks just have a lot of different guys that can run off an offense throughout sort of Trey. And um, as good as the Sixers are defensively, you're kind of going to be, you know, exhausting a lot of energy on those guys. And it makes it harder when some, one of your best defenders probably has to worry about room protection as well, you know, outside of room protect out of the perimeter defense. And that's why Joel is so important because it allows kind of, you know, especially allows Ben, Danny and Matisse and even George Hill to an extent to kind of focus on the perimeter side of things. But now someone's going to have to worry about the rim as well. So, um, Atlanta's kind of bevy of complimentary ball handlers will make it difficult for the Sixers. Um, or more press, it poses a significant challenge. And I want to say like, it's some concern, but it's a challenge that they have to kind of figure out. This, this is the point if Daniel was on the pod, he would talk about his successful online campaign to make sure Danny Green wasn't matched up against Bradley Beal in the first round. Um, so I do want to, uh, 
at least give a shout out there uh, because of all Dan, as you mentioned, Danny is, is it's still a great defender, but a guy who struggles, you know, trailing those guys off screens and Beal was kind of like top option and what top caliber player. When you think about guys who run around off screens and yeah, as you said, Bogdanovich is another guy in that mold. So yeah, that, that would seem to be a matchup. Doc Rivers would want to avoid with green on Bogdanovich, but, uh, and, and given the fact that he did make the adjustment and take Green off Beal and onto Rust for the first round series, I think he probably recognizes that. Um, you talked about all the the perimeter options the Sixers had. Uh, something a lot of people were a little surprised by in the first round was the fact that Doc stuck with his his full rotation, playing over ten guys, which in the playoffs is basically unheard of. Um, is that something you foresee him sticking with? I know I kind of had the mindset that, oh, it's Washington. Let's let all the guys get some action, keep them fresh, see who kind of, you know, emerges. And to Doc's credit, potentially, like that was something that allowed Tyrese Maxey to really flourish. And, and now he was one of their most important players as the, as the series concluded. So maybe that, that speaks to like, oh, if we had only gone with a nine-man rotation, Maxi might not even been playing, and we wouldn't have seen this. Um, but do you think that's something that sticks moving forward now that you know it's the conference semifinals? There's a, a lot more at stake than what you would think was an easier matchup against Washington in round one. I, I would say I expect Doc to go to it initially in game one. Like I think I think you'll see all five bench guys get minutes but at the same time I think Doc had done a good had done a good job in that first round of like if a, if if a guy didn't have it he didn't play them big minutes I mean like you know I think only nine he basically went to a nine man rotation in in game five obviously that it partly partly because Joel was out um but he only played he only played five guys over 20 minutes so um I expect Doc to give all all kind of all five bench guys a shot but I think you have to pencil in Dwight for some minutes right like you just you need him in there um, I think Matisse is, is, you know, if he seems to feel, if he starts again, you'll expect him to get, you know, 15 to 20 minutes, depending on how valuable his defense is in a given situation. Um, so my answer would be, yes, I expect it to happen, but I also am a little, I would say I'm optimistic that, that Doc won't go to it, you know, in the second half of the game, right? Like, I think he'll go to it whenever the, the starters come out. Um, but I, it's just tough because there, there's no, like, I think because you because these you have to play Dwight and then these three I mean kind of your three lead perimeter options off the bench are George Hill, Matisse Thibel, and Tyrese Maxey and they all kind of bring different skills but I think they're all important at the right moment so I think it's just you know I think I was talking with Daniel about this yesterday it's just a matter of you know it's I think it's okay like I think it'd be totally fine to you know consider playing nine guys in the rotation but that means you probably actually only want to go eight deep. Like if you need a little more offense and if you need kind of an offensive defensive guy, you go with George Hill because he blends both. If you need a little more defense, you go with Matisse Seibel. If you need some creation, you play you play Max in the heavy minutes there off the bench. So um, I expect Doc to go nine or 10 deep initially, but I think the important thing will be, you know, having those options, but not playing all those options on a given night, being very selective in that, but but knowing that different matchups will di- or different situations will dictate kind of who gets the most minutes off the bench among Matisse, George, and uh, and, and Tyrese, and even Furcon to an extent. I don't think, I don't think the way Shake is playing, he really warrants involving, involving himself in this, or that we should involve in this discussion right now. I think he could play, but I just don't think his play has been up to par as of late. Um, but Furcon is a guy who can get hot and kind of, you know, we saw him, 
you know, almost help kind of bring them back in game four with what he can do. And he's cl- he clearly seems to have a good chemistry with Ben, especially in transition. So um, I, I don't want to like, I, I think that playing, considering Furk on too much might be a mistake, but I think he at least warrants kind of consideration there because of what he can do as a shooter and kind of the way he, he can kind of flow with the hot hand, the confidence that he can get when he, when he hits a couple of threes. Yeah, especially with, you never want Ben and Dwight out there too long together, but it seems unavoidable that there are going to be some minutes uh, given if, if Joel's not available on a given night. So Corkmoss uh, says, the, hey, we need as much spacing as possible to help kind of alleviate that logjam that that creates having Ben and Dwight. So, you know, he's a guy that can help with in that area. So, yeah, I, I agree. I, I certainly don't think Corkmoss uh, is going to be completely out of the rotation um, by any means. Um how about for Atlanta? I know a lot of people might out there might not have, you know, caught too much of that that Hawks Knicks first round series. Are are they a team that Nate McMillan has his firm rotation set, or are they more similar to Philadelphia in that they're still kind of figuring stuff out at the back end and and looking to different guys on a given night off their bench to help them? Uh, you know, I think you know, I I caught I think three or four of of the. The Hawks Knicks games um, early on in the series, um, I think in game one especially, I think and maybe game two as well. Nate did go to an all bench lineup, so we might see we might see all bench versus all bench between Doc and Nate in this series at one point. Um, in but the year twenty twenty one, yeah, in, in the second round of the playoffs with the, with an Eastern Conference Finals trip available. Um, but uh, I didn't catch all of them, so I didn't catch some of the later games because my kind of motto was like, if you've seen a one Knicks Hawks team, you, you tended to see them all. Um, but I caught enough of them that, that I think. Um, you know, Gallinari is a, is a mainstay. Kevin Herter is a mainstay. They both, you know, Gallo struggled offensively, but he did some good things against Julius Randle defensively. Um, as I said earlier, Herter was very good in, in, kind of on both ends um, in the series. Um, and then, you know, they played Okongwu a little bit um, off the bench, but they would also go to Collins at the five. You know, Collins obviously is a starter. Um, Lou Will would play somewhat, but Lou Will, I think, you know, every call had a, had a tough series. Um, Solomon Hill got a little bit of run. Um but, you know, I think it was one of those things where it was maybe similar to Doc in that when the series began, they went 10 deep. Um, but as it kind of progressed, they would go eight deep, seven and a half deep, nine and a half deep, things like that. So um, where maybe you're seeing guys in the rotation kind of on, on first cycle, but then as the game would progress, they would not get as much much run, which is I think what you saw from Doc at times um, throughout that first round. So um, he's got a couple of mainstays in Herter and Gallo, who I think are pretty, you can pencil in significant minutes off the bench. Um, but other than that, I don't, you know, I think that McMillan kind of, he, he kind of tapered off down the stretch of playing kind of an entire bench, you know, pretty significant minutes. Um, or not just entire, but I would say five deep off the bench at times. So um, that's kind of what, what I've seen. I think those, you can, again, like you, you can expect Herder and Gallo to play. Um, but beyond that, it might be something where you see Lou for eight to 12 minutes a night, uh, a Kongu of maybe Capella or Collins in foul trouble, but maybe get five or six minutes outside of that. Um, but he kind of does have a couple of guys he likes to bring in, it seems like, and then other than that, it's not a super deep rotation where he has five guys playing 18 minutes off the bench. Okay, gotcha. Um, so we've talked a lot about Embiid not being available and what that would mean on both ends. Uh, let's go against the green here and bring a little potential optimism <laughs> to, to Philadelphia basketball, and let's assume you know he is back on the court sooner rather than later. Um, Clint Capella is a guy that, you know, one of the better big man defenders in the league. I think if you had to single cover Joel Embiid, he would probably be on the short list of guys 
you could try that with. How do you think uh, Nate McMillan would uh, attack that matchup, and do you think he would be comfortable with Capella in one-on-one situations against Embiid? And what, what do you foresee him doing as far as where would they bring the doubles, and how would he try to, you know, stop the MVP finalist? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think back, because I mean, we did see Capella and Joel play twice this year, or maybe three times, because I mean, Joel played all three games. I, I, if I recall correctly, I mean, I, I could be totally off base, my memory could just be lying to me, I think they did play Capella in single coverage a lot against Joel, um, and Joel, I mean, Joel had that huge first half in that game back in January, um, which is the only reason it was close at all before you know before halftime or whatever. Um, so I think they'll go single coverage. I think if they would bring a double, it would come from a guy like I would probably bring it from a guy like Jonder Hunter. You know, I think Hunter is someone who could match up with, you know, if 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 Joel plays, you know, because obviously Capella will will guard um, you know, Joel. If Capella play, if Joel plays, I think you would see Hunter as kind of that that guy to put to put on Ben because he's I mean he's kind of the mobile, strong, you know, wing size player. With you know so. I think that's where you'd bring help from. Um, if you're going to double, or if you're going to at least shade help, um, you know, kind of pl- maybe splitting the difference a little bit there. But splitting the difference doesn't usually work against Philly. You either got to commit hard or kind of stay at home. So um, I expect you know Capella to get first crack in single coverage. But I think at the same time he's so important to what they do. I mean, like I, I think kind of the plus minus numbers have been great all year for Capella. I mean, they just don't have someone else who can anchor the defense like that. Um, because their backup five is a is a rookie who's six eight six nine in Okongwu and missed part of the year with injury, so um, you know I, I, that's what I expect. But I mean that's kind of I think if you're looking for a reason that the Sixers could kind of maybe comfortably win this series, it would be that Joel was so, is so, I mean, Joel plays and he's he's so good with his foul baiting still that he he gets Capella into foul trouble in four or five games or however long it goes, uh, and the Hawks just can't really function defensively with, without. Capella in there, so that would be kind of the way the way that I think you should be most optimistic from a six perspective. And, and Joel is certainly up to the task because he's fouled out or gotten many many centers, even very good ones, in the foul trouble throughout his career, especially this season. So um, that's kind of my long winded way of saying that I, I think Capella will get first crack. But if they do bring help, it will be with DeAndre Hunter or maybe a guy like John Collins who you know isn't as mobile as Hunter, but is someone who has kind of some mobility and size, you know, kind of on the perimeter as a help defender. Yeah, I would say the most likely is whoever is guarding Ben, because mm-hmm. if, if he's along the perimeter, you don't have to really worry about him. Um, and Hunter and Collins are both guys who size-wise you would think could feasibly be the, the coverage matchup for Ben. So it's going to be up to him to, to make smart cuts, and if he's in the dunker spot, create availability for himself to get, get those little dump-offs um, from Joel if, if the double does come. Um, all right, so... We got it. We got to do it. It's prediction time. Um, and if uh, obviously the huge asterisk involves Joel Embiid, so if you want to uh, do your best Doctor Strange impression and imagine multiple timelines where Joel does and doesn't play and give different answers, I'm okay with that. Um, but but how do you see this Atlanta Philadelphia second round series uh, playing out? Yeah, I, th- I think I was on a, I was on a Hawks uh, focus podcast yesterday evening, and I got the exact same question. Um, I think if Joel plays most of the games, or maybe over half the games, I'll say that as coming my caveat here. Um, I will say Sixers and seven. I would have said Sixers and six if Joel was fully healthy. I think this is still a tough matchup for them, regardless of Joel's status. But I think Joel is good enough that I think he could get Capella into some foul trouble in a few games, and then the Sixers will really kind of f- 
would thrive in those minutes and they would maybe win a couple of games comfortably. Um, but the fact of the matter is, even if Joel plays, he's not going to be 100%, which is unfortunate because he was playing such incredible basketball before before the injury. Um, I mean, kind of staking his claim as someone who had, who had a case as the best player in the world, um, honestly, the way he was playing that first round, the control he had on both ends. Um, but if Joel does not play most of these games, I think I would honestly go Hawks in six. And that's not... That's not because I, I think the Sixers can't win. It's because I think Joel is so important with what they do on both ends in this matchup that I just think they would struggle. Um, and I think the Hawks are a very good team. I don't think the fact that they went 41-31 and 31 and have the same record as the as the Knicks and almost the same record as the Heat is indicative of what this team's quality. They they have a, they have star power up top with Trey Young. They have complimentary ball handlers. They have shooting. They have lob threats. They have a good defense. Um they kind of went through two or three iterations of their team when you know with Lloyd Pierce and then with Nate McMillan. You know, DeAndre Hunter was out for a stretch, Bogdan Bogdanovich was out for a stretch. Um, this is a really good team that I think even if the Sixers were fully healthy, would give the them some issues. That, that's not to say I think they would beat the Sixers. I don't think they would if if the Sixers were fully healthy, but uh, they're just not right now. And so um, I'll go Sixers and seven if Joel plays more than half the games, and if not, I'll go Hawks and six, which I think that's a really good team, and I would not discount their their ability on both ends. Yeah, I agree. The Atlanta and six, if Joel is not playing, I just think the Trey and his lob threat kind of combination is something that the Sixers don't have an answer for if Joel's not on the court. Um, and then they would have to like keep up offensively, and they're just not a team that's built uh, to just keep up offensively with teams, especially without Joel as that safety blanket of, hey, you can just dump it to him and get buckets whenever you want. And just, it, yeah, and in this matchup, too, where the Hawks have some guys to maybe like on the wings, as we mentioned earlier, like they have the Hunter, the Collins, the Gallo that they can throw on Tobias or Ben to not necessarily like, contain, like stop them, but it's much it's a much better option than anything Washington had last round. So it's, it's a tough matchup in that regard. But, but yeah, I, I agree with you there for sure. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how Tobias... Uh, plays in the series because the whole narrative around them has shifted, like given his past postseason struggles mm-hmm. in Philadelphia and he was so excellent in that Washington series. So is it that he's grown as a player and this is just who he is now, or is just Washington the best possible matchup for him? Because he was either going against a big man who he was much quicker than, or a guy that was not nearly his size and he could just body them up and get to his spots and shoot over them easily. It's like, you, if you're Tobias Harris, you couldn't have a better opponent to face them with the, wiz- the Wizards. So, yeah, as you said, Atlanta has plenty of very credible wing defenders, and it's going to be up to him to uh, rise to the occasion and, and keep playing well, for sure. Yeah. All right, Jackson. So, you said Sixers and seven, if Joel's available for at least half the games, and Atlanta and six, if not. Um, if... If Atlanta does, if Joel's not available and Atlanta does pull out, how do you, how do you think this season would be viewed? Would they just chalk it up as oh, as one of those those freak injuries that you know you can't really help injuries and that's just how it was? Or do you think what would, what would the overall feeling of a second round loss for the Sixers be? I think it would be a missed opportunity, um, but mostly outside of their control because at the same time there is the foundation of a, a, a sustained title contender, right? Like they, you trust the front office now with what Darren Morey has done in the past six months or eight months since he was hired. And they have avenues to continue to improve. Like if they want it, if, if somehow some guys become available in the offseason, like you have all your draft picks, you have Matisse, Thibel, you have Tyrese Max, you have guys with, with fairly like 
easily movable contracts in Seth Curry and George Hill. Like you have avenues to, you know, improve your team. And that is, so I'm not saying like we want like immediately trade Tyrese Max or Matisse Thibel, but you have a very, very good front office guy that can you you can feel confident and will will make the right move if the time comes. And you have you have Ben Simmons, who was a, a, a top 25, 30 player, and you have Joel Embiid, who, you know, I think, you know, I, I, there are so many guys who are top five caliber, so I would just say t- Joel Embiid is a top five caliber player because it just depends on kind of your your preference, but that's what you need to win a title, and you have that in Joel, and you have the coaching and the front office decision makers to, you know, amplify that. So I think this season would be, would be viewed as a missed opportunity, but one largely outside of their control. I mean, like, you just can't, like, there's, it's no one's fault that Joel got injured. Like, I mean, people can say, oh, Joel needs to, like, play like change the way he plays like he just came off of the year where he's an MVP finals is probably going to be the runner-up like I'm not going to tell the dude to change how he plays like I'm not like you know what I mean so I would say it's just a missed opportunity but one that isn't their fault like, it wasn't because they you know they doc should have played player x more minutes or he should have called this set more often it would just be one of those things if if your best player and MVP finalist you know is compromised it's it's tough to to win like that so um, missed opportunity, but there should still be a lot of optimism around this team over the next three or four years because of the players they have in place, the strides that a guy like Tobias made, and the the ways they still can improve and maybe acquire a little more high end talent and maybe a, a maybe a little better perimeter shot creation. You know, when things can get kind of slow down in the playoffs. Yeah, Joel, I, I think to his credit, has done a really good job of you know learning how to fall better and kind of avoid some of those injuries that he was suffering earlier in his career and I, I don't think this was really a situation of him being like over aggressive or or anything it's just you know it's basketball all these things happen so um, yeah, he's a seven foot right. 280 pound center who plays like a, a six four wing sometimes you're gonna have these, these things happen so <laughs> exactly um well hopefully that's that what what you laid out while I think was well thought out is not something we have to contend with because if the Sixers fans are certainly hoping that Embiid will be back uh, fairly soon, uh, maybe even game one, we'll see, and that the uh, Sixers can take care of business in the second round and, and, and move on to what would be a highly anticipated series against the Nets or uh, the Bucks. But for now, they, they do have a really tough matchup with Atlanta, and they're going to have to uh, take this one step at a time. So, Jackson, thank you for, for joining us, and or joining me on the Talking About podcast. Uh, well, Daniel will be back next week. Um, I know you you had a recent uh, Mikhail Bridges article that's really good um, on Dime Up Rocks. Um, anything else out there you want to plug right now? Uh, no, I think that. I mean, I appreciate you shouting that out. That would be kind of that took. That was a lot of a lot of work. So you know, so on my, my on my Twitter, you can find that at Jack Frank underscore JJF or on Dime Up Rocks. Um, really enjoyed writing that about Mikhail and, and glad the reception to it has been positive. Uh, but appreciate you having me on, Sean, and I. I hope that I wasn't too doom and gloom for all the listeners. I think there's certainly a, a very reasonable chance the Sixers still win this series, and that's what's most important for them. So um, appreciate you having me on, though. All right, yeah. No, I think you brought the right amount of skepticism. That's that's the Philadelphia fans' <laughs> comfort zone, is, uh, is, is that level. Measured of... skepticism. Exactly. So, um, yeah, thanks again for joining us. And uh, everyone out there, Daniel and I will be back next week to talk about what's going on in this second-round series. So thanks for listening.